Any preacher who aims to be both thorough and true to God's words always going to have a bit bit of a dilemma when he preaches from this section of Romans. And the reason for this dilemma is we preachers, well, we just love to preach the good news. Um, We love to be able to preach the gospel and share the good news with people. So, yeah, there's going to be times when we cover the wrath of God and judgment and the consequences of sin and of not believing in Jesus. But there is a very real temptation to briefly skip through all of this stuff so that we can get to what we really want to preach about, being saved. Uh, And my dilemma today, and probably for the next three or four weeks, is this section of Paul's letter to the Romans gives me no opportunity for this. Uh, There is no let up. Paul is relentless in laying out the human predicament. He goes on and on and on. You see... The gospel isn't good news unless we first understand the bad news. And as I said, usually the temptation for us preachers is to quickly skip through all of the bad news so we can get to the good news just as quick as we can because that's what we want to tell you about. Uh, But for about the next two chapters, Paul is very detailed. He takes his time in explaining the bad news. And so I'm not going to apologise because I'll never apologise for God's word. I am, however, giving you a bit of a heads up. I'm giving you a warning that today and for the next few weeks, our Bible readings are going to be a bit tough going. Uh, It's going to be like going through a long, dark tunnel. um, But my, how much brighter it's going to be uh, when we get on the other side and we see the gospel for what it is. Over these next few weeks... We're going to be hearing about the downward spiral of godlessness and sin. And because all of the sordid details and the reasons for the wrath of God are spelled out in detail right here in the Bible, I believe the Lord wants us to know and to understand this in detail. Um, And so we're not going to quickly skip through it. We're not going to quickly skip through the bad news so that we can get to the good news. We're going to give it the same attention and the same time that we're going to give everything else in this book of Romans. And I believe that we will be far richer because of it. Um, Over the next few weeks... Oops. It's all right. (laughs) Over the next few weeks... As Paul outlines the utterly hopeless situation that all humanity find themselves in, uh, the immorality, the social evils, the corruption, the vile state of humanity, totally lost, totally depraved, totally hopeless, my prayer is that we will come out on the other side being acutely aware of how wonderful the blessing is to be saved through Christ Jesus our Lord. My prayer is that we will love Jesus more because of what he has done for us on the cross. My prayer is that we will appreciate more what Jesus Christ has has saved us from, uh, that we will glorify God for his righteousness in judgment, and we will glorify him for his righteousness in saving us from that judgment. And I pray that we'll be given a new energy a new reason, a new vigour for preaching the gospel, that that we would be moved with love for our neighbour and a desire for them to be rescued from their current and pending judgement. Now, having said all that, Paul is a preacher too, and he loves to get the gospel in there too. 
And whilst we're going to have pretty much two full chapters where we don't get to hear the good news of Jesus, he both begins with the good news and ends with the good news. He's already introduced this passage with the good news. We heard it last week when we read verses 16 and 17. Now, if you were here then, do you remember how those verses last week were all linked together with the word because? Well, this verse is linked in the same way with the word because. So this is how it went. I'm eager to preach the gospel. Why? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But why am I not ashamed of the gospel? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. But why is it the power of God for salvation? Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed. Right? So that was the progression last week. And this is where today's reading begins. Well, why is the righteousness of God being revealed? Because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so Paul begins with the good news. We'd better not try and separate today's message from last week's message. Remember, Romans is a letter. And when you read a letter, you don't read a, like you get a letter from mum or great-grandma or whatever, and and. You don't just read one paragraph today and then next week read another paragraph. You read the whole thing together. And Paul begins with the good news. The gospel is the power of God to save. But who cares about that? You've got that message. The gospel is the power of God to save. Now, if you were to take that message out into the streets this very week, Believe in Jesus, everyone. The gospel is the power of God to save. Who's going to listen to you? Who cares? Who cares if the gospel is the power of God to save or not? Who needs saving anyway? I don't feel like I need saving. And so to fully understand why the gospel is the good news, first we have to understand that we are caught up in this thing called the wrath of God. We have to understand why we are caught up in the wrath of God and why without Jesus we deserve death. So I'm eager to preach the gospel. Why? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Why? Because in the gospel the righteousness of God is being revealed. Why? Because the wrath of God is being revealed. Isn't that interesting? usually the goody saves you from the baddie, right? Or the hero saves you from the villain. Or somebody steps in and saves you from some random disaster. But that's not what the salvation of the gospel is about. God saves those who have faith in Jesus from the wrath of who? From the wrath of God. God saves us from his own wrath. God's righteousness gets revealed as he saves us from his own wrath, which is itself righteous. Does that do your head in? It does mine in a bit. It's going to do our heads in until we understand the righteousness of God, which includes his righteous wrath. 
You see, the problem we people today have with the wrath of God is we humans can't help but project our experiences of imperfect wrath onto the term. We tend to think of wrath as being when somebody totally loses it, when they totally lose self-control and they lash out in a violent, uncontrolled rage. That's what we would picture wrath being. But God's wrath is not like that. God's wrath is righteous. It is right. It is totally under his control and as such is actually an expression of his goodness. Now that might sound a bit strange to you, but the wrath of God is a term that expresses the settled and active opposition of God's holy nature to everything that is evil. And biblically, the wrath of God has two aspects of it, to it, a simmering and a boiling over. Verse 18 says, the wrath of God is being revealed. And that means that God's wrath is already present. It's already active. We can already catch little glimpses of it out in the world today. But we also know that there is a time that the Bible calls the day of the Lord when God's wrath bubbles over and it comes in in one big hard hit. So the wrath of God is sort of, think of it like a saucepan on a stove. You know, sometimes, did this happen this morning? We've got the saucepan on the stove cooking the porridge for breakfast and it's just simmering away. But then you go away for a little bit and you come back and the whole thing's just boiled over. Okay. On the day of the Lord, the simmering saucepan of God's wrath will boil over in the judgment of the world. Now, the concept of the wrath of God, it's pretty much gone out of fashion um, because it doesn't sell real good. Uh, nobody wants to, <laughs> nobody wants to hear about the wrath of God. It doesn't sound very nice and, and we only like nice things. We only like to tell people nice stuff. And so some people will say, well, if God is a God of love, then there can't really be anything such as the wrath of God. And some people try to explain it away in two ways. Some will say the wrath of God is simply a way of describing the natural consequences of sin. So, for example, if you rob a bank, you may happen to get shot during the robbery. All right? Just a natural consequence of your sin. Or if you drink too much grog, you might get liver disease. Or if you're rude and arrogant, you might end up with no friends. Or if you sleep around, you might catch a venereal disease. All right? So some think of the wrath of God as being a way of describing the natural result of sin. And others might describe the wrath of God as just taking the brakes off. Right, so that way of thinking is we're on a slippery slope and we're all just naturally inclined to, to fall into um, immorality or whatever. And um, when we turn our backs on God, he just takes the brakes off and away we go. Now, the problem with these two views is it's not really what's being described here. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. That's a way of saying that this wrath is God's doing. 
It is his active judgment on evil. It's not just happenstance. It's being revealed from heaven. It is judgment from the very throne of God himself. And three times it says, God handed them over. Verse 24 says, therefore God handed them over in the passions of their hearts to uncleanness, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26 says, because of this, God handed them over to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God handed them over to a worthless mind. Throughout the Old Testament, there were times when a society had become so evil, God would hand them over for punishment. God would hand over Israel's enemies for Israel to conquer because of punishment for their evil. And when Israel turned their backs on God and started worshipping idols instead, God handed over his own people to be punished by another nation. And here, Paul says that God has handed over the ungodly to all sorts of immorality and depravity. The wrath of God is exactly that, God's wrath, God's punishment for sin, something which is simmering away now but will boil over on the day of judgment, on the day of the Lord. Now, when Paul is talking about ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, I think it's best to understand this both at a personal level, our ungodliness, our unrighteousness of the individual, but more so at a societal level. And so not every individual will have the same sin and the same vices. Uh, The downward spiral of ungodliness and unrighteousness of men can be best seen when we look at at a whole society as ungodliness and unrighteousness increase. And the ungodliness and unrighteousness thing is a little bit like the chicken and the chicken and the egg. Okay, what came first, the chicken or the egg? What came first, ungodliness or unrighteousness? Unrighteousness leads people to turn their backs on God. And so then they've got godlessness and then their godlessness means they've rejected God and God hands them over to sin. And so their unrighteousness increases. And so that godlessness increases and unrighteousness increases, which increases the godlessness, which increases the unrighteousness. So it's a circular thing, but it's going downhill the whole time. And so one Bible study that I, that I've done, it, it, the heading of it was the downward spiral of this chapter. And I think that's a pretty good description of it. The downward spiral of godlessness and sin. And we can see this very clearly in our society. Our sin, our attitude toward God has caused us as a society to reject God. And as our society has become more and more godless, it has become more and more morally corrupt. When, when I was preparing for this message, I listened to a sermon, an old one, that would have been recorded in the late 1960s or the early 1970s. And in it, the preacher said that this catalogue of sins that we read in the, in the Bible reading reads like it comes from a police desk blotter. 
In other words, it's a whole bunch of sins that are crimes. Okay, there's sorts of things which could have been recorded in the in the week's activities for the policeman. Right, we've arrested this person for this, and this person is this. And and I heard that sermon, and I thought, wow, things are a bit different now. Most of those things aren't even crimes. All of these things once used to be illegal. A lot of them. They once used to be an offence in society and yet now it's becoming more and more accepted and, dare I say, commonplace. So I was interested by that and I dug out an old commentary that I bought secondhand at a Lifeline book fest, first printed in 1955. Does anyone here remember 1955? Yeah, yep, you do. Roy remembers 1955. If Gordon was a bit younger, he would remember it. Um, Let me read to you what William Barclay said in 1955 when he's commenting on this passage. He says, It might seem that this passage is the work of some almost hysterical moralist who was exaggerating contemporary situation and painting it in colours of rhetorical, sorry, rhetorical hyperbole. That means he's really going over the top in describing it. Um, where, where am I up to? It describes a situation of a degeneracy of morals almost without parallel in human history and there is nothing that Paul said that the Greek and Roman writers of the age did not themselves say. And when I read that, I thought, whoa, how far has society shifted in the last 60 years? I mean, in 1955 Great Britain, the immoral Greek society that Paul described was absolutely unthinkable. They thought that this fellow's just going way over the top because nobody could ever be that bad. Um, Then in the 1960s and 1970s, much of it was still a criminal offence and an offence to society. And what's it like today? Now possibly the most immoral and amoral of societies, first century Greece and Rome are very much like our own. How can our society crumble so quick? I'll tell you why. It's because in our unrighteousness, our society have rejected God. And turn to all sorts of idolatry. If you take away the one true living God, you have to replace him with something. And he always gets replaced with a lie. And in first century Greek culture, that lie was a multitude of gods. They had a God for this and a God for that. And they worshipped these gods and they very quickly fell into immorality. In fact, in the temples of some of their gods, there were thousands of cult prostitutes. And that's how they used to worship their gods. They'd go in and spend some time in the temple. Divorce was rampant. Marriage meant nothing. One commentary I read uh, stated that 14 out of 15 emperors used to engage in homosexual acts. Uh, Of course, that was often with young boys. When a people turn their back on God, immorality is fast to follow. A good example of that in the Bible is when Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting given the Ten Commandments. He'd been up there a while and and the people of Israel wondered what had happened to him. And they thought, well, he's gone, we better make our own God. And so they get Aaron to make for them a golden calf. 
And when Moses and Joshua come back down off the mountain, they hear the revelry. And the language is about how the people broke loose. The people had cast off all restraint. They're running around wild and out of control. And it's almost the picture of a drunken orgy. First thing they did, turned their back on God and created an idol. And then they just fell into corruption. And our society today has turned its back on God. People have turned to all sorts of idols. Now, we tend to think of an idol as being you know, a block of wood or a stone that's had an animal carved into it. But there's all sorts of idolatry. An idol is anything that we worship in the place of God. For some, it could be a footy team. It could be the Wallabies or the Springboks or whatever. Anything that we worship in the place of God is an idol. An idol is any lie that we believe that makes us suppress the truth and turn our backs on God. And there's a multitude of of idols that our nation has. I'll just list four of them. I guess the first and most obvious are gods of other religions. And as our nation becomes more and more multicultural, we should expect to see our culture becoming more and more multi-faith or multi-religion. Now, please never, ever believe the lie that we all worship the one God. We do not. That is not true. There is only one true God, and he is very jealous for our undivided attention. You know, we tend to think of jealousy as being a bad thing, but there is a time where jealousy is good. So, for instance, I am very jealous for my wife. I don't want to share her with any other man. And if she were to give her attention to another man, I would be exceedingly jealous. And it would be right for me to be jealous. And God is jealous in exactly the same way for us. A second example of idolatry in Australia would be New Age spiritualism. Eastern mysticism, crystals, transcendental meditation, practicing yoga, tai chi, reiki, iridology, um, biodynamic farming, all sorts of New Age spiritualism that people get involved in is dabbling in the occult and getting involved in the worship of demons. A third example of idolatry in Australia would have to be one of the most common forms of it, and that is to make a god of our own creation. And I've said this before, you know how often we'll hear it said, I like to think that God is like, and then the person will describe to you what they think God is like. And it'll always be a God of their own making. It won't be a description of God as he has revealed himself in the Bible. And, of course, their God is somebody who will never judge them, uh, doesn't require anything of them, is very happy to let them live their lives for themselves, and most often this God that they believe in will be very much like themselves. And so that's probably the most common form of idolatry we have in Australia, where people decide for themselves what they think God is like. And a fourth example in Australia, I actually had trouble coming up with a name for this one, but I've made up this own name. Um, I hope you like it. You mightn't understand it. 
that's okay. A God of ideological science. Um, for those who don't understand that word, ideological, it means when you have an idea about something and, th- and so therefore everything you do is to line up with your idea, okay? Theories of evolution and Big Bang ceased long ago to be a quest for truth. In fact, according to the scriptures, they are in themselves a suppression of the truth. And I'm just going to retell a little bit of the kids' story for the sake of those who are listening to this message on the, uh, on the web later on. If I were walking in the wilderness and stumbled upon a Leatherman, a folded up multi-tool pocket knife thing, I wouldn't for a moment assume that it was an accident of nature that formed that Leatherman. It has obviously been designed and constructed. It could never happen by chance. And yet a kangaroo or a sheep or a bird or a fish or a human being is infinitely more complex than a Leatherman. And yet people claim as science that, no, 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 these things have not been designed, they just happened by chance. Now, that's just foolishness. Verse 19 and 20 tell us that God has made himself known in creation. God has put his fingerprints on creation everywhere we look. What he has made should instantly reveal to us his eternal power and his divine nature. And so nobody has an excuse. We all get to see and touch and feel and consider what we see in creation. But in their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. And that's why I've called it the God of ideological science. The ideas of men are clasping at straws in the name of science and they come up with a theory that lets them deny the creator. And yet that theory just has so many holes in it. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Friends, humanism is another way of worshipping the creature rather than the creator. When a society turns its back on God, it's not long until that society descends into immorality. And we can see this even on a family level. You've seen it, I know you have. Where the grandfather may be a very godly and moral man, a righteous figure. His son, however isn't really a man of faith. Maybe he goes to church occasionally, but, but but he always tries to do the right thing and tries to live a moral life and stays married to the one woman for his whole life. But then his son, the grandson of the godly grandfather, well, he's a bit of a drunk and, and he sleeps around before he gets married and then when he gets married it only lasts a few years and, and he's the sort of fellow who'd never, ever set foot in a church. And people who knew the grandfather go, my, how could the, how could the grandson be that fellow's, how could that fellow be that so-and-so's grandson? 
and then his kids are almost uncontrollable. They're already showing signs of severe antisocial behaviour. They'll lie to your face and nobody will be surprised when they end up in jail. It's just a generational change, a generational spiral downhill. You've seen it in a family somewhere? Yeah? I'm seeing a few nods. I've seen it. And it all begins when one generation turns its back on God. And that's why it's so important for us parents to hold firm to the faith in the one true God. If the way that we live presents to our children that worshipping God isn't really that important to us, well, guess what? God and morality will be even less important to our children. And God and morality will be even less important to their children and even less important to their children. And there will be a downward, downward spiral. We see it in society. We see it in families. And the downward, downward spiral of godlessness and immorality will continue until something happens to break that spiral. Because remember how this passage was introduced? The gospel is the power of God to save. The gospel is the power of, the go- power of God to break that downward spiral. When God intervenes into a life, and even when God intervenes into a, into a society, he can break us out of it. And the great Christian revivals of history have been times when God has brought not only individuals, but whole societies to their knees and out of that downward spiral. So there you go. I did happen to slip the good news in there again, didn't I? I think we'd better leave it at there for today and we'll continue on with it again next week. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to um, acknowledge that even in our society, we see this downward spiral. As our society have turned their backs on you, immorality has increased. And Lord, we probably never really actually realised that this is actually a sign of your wrath. And Lord, next week as we learn more about how your wrath is displayed in this world, Lord, we want to keep foremost in our minds that we are hearing this with thankful hearts because we know that there is something which can break this downward spiral and And that is the gospel, which is the power of God to save. Lord, we thank you for your salvation that you have worked in us already. Lord, we pray for our world, the society in which we live. Lord, I pray that the good news of your gospel will break in to save. Lord, we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.